all God's people near and far said together, amen, amen. Those of you with us may be seated and those of you at home may, I don't know, relax and put your feet up or whatever it is you're doing as you're, uh, as you're worshiping uh, at home together. Well, again, good morning. If you've got a Bible, I want you to take it out, of course, at this time, and I want you to meet me at, at probably, it would be difficult to find a more unmother's Day passage, probably unmother's Day-ish passage to preach from today, but we're working our way through James, and, and I felt like the Lord said, keep going in James, so that's what we're going to do. So turn to the book of James, specifically chapter, James chapter 2. I want you to find your way to James chapter 2, where we're going to read the word today, and we're going to do our best to to understand and walk through it together. And just as you're making your way there, I just I want to try to resolve probably the one question that you all have burning in, in your mind right now as you've been watching the service together, which is, did Aaron and Beth mean to dress exactly alike for church today? And, um, and the answer is no, we're just that old that it happens now uh, no matter what. So we sat down in the car together. I said, I don't believe what we just did. So, so here we are. It's one of those days, and, uh, and, and we're glad uh, we're glad for it regardless, and it should be a fun day for many of us, a good day for many of us as we celebrate Mother's Day, as, as we just celebrate God and who He is and the way He works in our lives. And if you haven't read ahead in James chapter 2 yet to the passage I'm about to read for you and with you, um, this is a sort of another buckle-up-your-seatbelt passage in God's Word, because it goes to the realities, touches on, and actually this week may just be an appetizer for next week, so I don't know what you want to do with that, but, but every time I think James can't, uh, can't hit me just a little bit more where it lives, he, he does so, and he's going to do that today. First of all, I think perhaps by, by confusing us a little bit by what he says, but then as we move from confusion to clarity, we realize that God's got some things to say to us. God's got some something to communicate to us, if indeed, in fact, we intend to flourish as followers of Jesus Christ. So with that, by way of introduction, I'm going to begin reading this morning in James 2, verse 14, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, verse 26, where this is what the Bible says. James says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, the man is justified by works, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let me begin by asking you this morning just a couple of questions to think on. Question number one, which, 
which wing on an airplane is the more important of the two wings? <laughs> which of your two legs is more essential to walking correctly? Which of the two blades on a pair of scissors is more vital, more critical to the act of cutting? Well, the answer, of course, to all three of those questions is that in order to do what you want to get done, you've got to have both. Every airplane's got to have two wings. Every person who wants to walk has to have two healthy, more or less, legs. If you want to cut, you've got to have two sharp blades on the scissors. One won't do it. And the reason I mention it is because according to what we just read in James chapter 2, the same thing goes for faith and for works in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. That is to say, to do otherwise. To have faith but not works. To do works in the name of the Lord but without faith. Well, that is, it is as, first of all, it is as ridiculous. And secondly, as James even uses the word here, it is as useless as trying to get a one-winged airplane off of the ground. It simply can't be done. But as simple as, as that sounds, as easy as that is to say, the fact of the matter is that what James wrote in these 13 verses raises many questions, many of them rather thorny, rather complicated questions. And I believe, as I said a moment ago, these are questions we must confront. These are questions we have to take seriously and find a way to respond to if we are serious about growing and flourishing as followers of Jesus Christ, even if it's complicated on the surface, even if it's confusing at first or even second or third read. This is something we need to know to faithfully, fruitfully follow Jesus Christ. So with that much said by way of introduction... We're going to dive right into the deep end of this passage this morning and start. There are actually four things I'm going to show you, at least that I intend to by the time we're we're all said and done. But the first thing I want to begin with is, is simply by looking at verse 14 and doing the best we possibly can to recognize and respond to, number one, an apparent conflict. There is an apparent conflict here that we must resolve, and this is absolutely foundational to everything else I'm going to say. So if I screw this up, we're all going to be lost the rest of the time. So you pray for me. I'll do my best to speak clearly to you, and we'll see if we can figure out what's going on in this apparent conflict that as believers we need to resolve. The way I want to do that is to ask you for a moment to imagine yourself to be a new believer in Jesus Christ. And you decide, as a new believer in Jesus Christ, that you're going to read through the New Testament for the very first time. You're going to start in Matthew and methodically, systematically just read through the Gospels, then Acts and Romans, and then the letters, and and just follow it from start to finish, because now that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you want to know what this book has to say. And and so you're going happily along, you're reading and, and absorbing and listening and learning until you come to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which both summarize and authenticate, validate everything you've been reading so far when it says the following, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. And, 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 and as you read that, your heart, if you're paying attention, it sort of stands up and cheers, right? Yeah, that's the message. It validates everything you've read so far. And then you continue happily along, reading more of the Bible, more of the letters, more of the insights, more of the teaching, 
until you reach James 2.14, and then, like a brick through your living room window, all that peace and joy is shattered when you read, look at verse 14 again, the following words. What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he, she has faith, but no works, can that faith save them? And you ask yourself, wait a second, is the Bible preaching two different messages? Do, do Paul and James fundamentally disagree on what it takes to ensure you've received the gift of eternal life, that you're going to heaven when you die? Do they differ on the way of salvation? And you begin to ask yourself, could this be one of those supposedly irreconcilable uh, contradictions that, that skeptics and critics tell me I'm going to find when I read the Bible, that it doesn't match up, that it's always saying different things? Could that be what's going on here? Well, in a word, what I want you to know this morning is the answer is no. Despite first impressions, there is no actual conflict here between what Paul said in Ephesians 2. It is not a result of works. And what James says here, can faith without works actually save you? And, and instead, what we're seeing here are, are really two distinct dimensions of one single issue. And to see if I can sort of unpack and explain that, here's, here's what the, the essentials of what I think we need to take hold of. First of all, we need to understand, number one, these are not going to be on the screens. So if you want to write this down, you're just going to have to follow me as best you can. I'll try to be clear. But first of all, the Bible is clear. Salvation was accomplished by Christ's death on the cross. His death and resurrection paid the full price for our sin. And all we must do to be saved, the Bible is clear, is repent of our sin and trust Jesus Christ. That is the gift of salvation. Now, that said, look again at verse 14. Because what James says in verse 14, what he is referring to is someone who claims to have done this. Look at what he's, how he writes. What use is it, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith in Jesus Christ? Now, maybe he does, and maybe he doesn't. We don't know, but he says he does, claims that he has trusted Christ. And James says the gist of his question then at the end of verse 14 is this. Now, your Bible, like mine, probably says, can that faith save him? Really, the idea, uh, the emphasis of the question is, brothers and sisters, can that kind of faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? What use is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have any works? Does that look like saving faith to you or to me? Why does James ask that? Because genuine faith in Jesus Christ always, eventually, inevitably leads to a changed life. What do we say around here all the time? It is impossible to truly encounter Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. It is impossible to trust Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. You cannot read the Gospels in the book of Acts and come to any other conclusion than when someone gives their life to Christ, they are a new creation and life does change. And by the way, Paul agrees with that. In, in Ephesians 2.10, 8 and 9 talk about grace being saved through faith, not as a world of works that no one should boast. And then he says this in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created, new creations in Christ Jesus for good works, which God laid out beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the way we resolve this apparent conflict 
Paul looking like he's saying and is saying salvation is by grace through faith alone. James saying faith without works isn't the real deal is, is this. Paul is talking about entering into the relationship. Paul's talking about entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. James is talking about evidence for the relationship. James is talking about evidence for it. Because while works don't save, listen to me, faith does work. Works don't save, but faith does work. It always leads to living for the glory of the Lord. Now, it's going to look different in your life than it does in mine. It's going to come at a different pace in your life than it does in mine. Sometimes that that seed goes into the ground, and it takes a while to show up. And sometimes it's off and running right away. But faith works. And it moves us to live for the glory of God. And that is why in the next few verses... James addresses, this is the second thing that I want you to see, the reason he brings the the issue up at all is because that allows him then to talk about, secondly, the problem of knowledge without compassion. The problem of knowledge without compassion. Grab your Bible, look again at verses 15 through 17. He presents us with a scenario. James says, if a brother or sister, so the The image in your mind is the gathered people of God, somebody walks in, brother or sister in the church. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, admittedly, admittedly, the the person that James is talking about in this scenario did more than, than, say, the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who, if you go back and read that story of Jesus, it says the guy's lying wounded, half dead in the middle of the road, and the priest and the Levite, the religious dudes, they see it, they move to the other side, and without a word, they keep right on going. This guy that James is talking about has done more than that. He has spoken to the person in need. But even so, what does James say? Verse 16. He says that they say, go in peace, be warmed and and filled. The equivalent of that today would be, best of luck to you, I'll say a prayer, right? That's what he's talking about here. He says that you don't give them what's necessary. What use is that? And what does he call it in verse 17? Dead faith. He calls it dead faith. Literally the word, the root of it means corpse like. And frankly, I would humbly but directly submit to you that ought to rattle our cage. No matter how long you've known and followed Jesus Christ. Because the kind of person James is speaking of here is a regular, we would call a regular attender, right? And, and they recognize the need. And they can talk the talk. They could probably find Habakkuk in their Bible on request if you asked them to. I mean, they know some stuff, right? It's not that they're an outsider. They've been on the inside for a while. Yet what James says is that their absence of compassion, the fact that extreme human need prompted no actual response, raises the question, are you sure you're saved? That you can just say a nice word and walk on by? Are you sure you're saved? I mean, you say you are, but are you? Why? Because such compassion, 
Compassion toward human need is, is typically Christian. It is the normal Christian thing, the, the attitude and the actions that spring from a saved, a changed, regenerated heart. And so in all sincerity, listen, I want to ask you, could that be you? I'm not talking about fruit inspectors sizing each other up. I'm saying, look at your own heart. Could that in any way describe you? Outwardly speaking, you're present and accounted for. You've got your pew. You haven't sat in it for a while, but you've got your pew. You're in the directory. You've got a mailbox. You know the ropes of Sunday worship because you've been at it for a while. And, and the issue isn't, listen, the issue is not that you're a saint on Sunday and a monster on Monday. That's called hypocrisy. That's different sin. No, the issue here is that you're the same person every day, and not in a good way. There is no evidence of change in your life, of growth, of progress. There's no hunger for the things of God. There, even if you're stumbling and fumbling and bumbling, there's, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's better. But this is saying, no, no, there's just nothing. There's no evidence in your life. You more or less agree with it in your head. But it's making no impact in your heart. The friends who knew you before, you trusted Jesus with, hey, you're pretty much the same guy. It's kind of nice. I was, I was afraid he'd be different. But she hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. James, not me. James is saying, so get mad at him. James is saying, are you sure you're saved? Because that's not what the Christian life looks like. James is calling us to self-examination. After all, it was Jesus, no less than Jesus, who once said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, many of us know that verse, but do you remember the rest of it, what he says? Matthew 7, 21, he says, it is the one who does the will of my Father, who names it, names me, knows me, and, and it has shown up in their life who enters the kingdom of heaven. And so what James is saying, and he's getting deadly serious here, is the problem with knowledge without compassion. It may be that you're in a slump, okay? We all have spiritual slumps. But he says, if this has been the pattern of your life since the day that you walked to the aisle or raised your hand or prayed the prayer, the problem with knowledge without compassion, it may be a signal you don't truly, you have not been converted. You've not been changed. And James says the time is now to, to deal with that. So he talks about first about the problem with, of knowledge without compassion, but he doesn't stop there. Because in the next three verses, verses 18 through 20, he then moves from, from sort of kind of one side of the, the coin of this issue of faith and works to, to another side, to the other side of it. When he speaks to us, this is the third thing I want you to see, following on the heels of the problem of knowledge without compassion, of the peril of knowledge plus emotion. The spiritual peril of knowledge plus emotion. Let me ask you a question that has really just, as it came to me this week, I've just been chewing on it a lot. Have you ever thought about the fact that demons, who the Bible says are real creatures, real created beings, have great theology? That, that their theology is probably better than ours because they've seen the Lord. They know who he is. 
They know how he works. It's, it's really at the heart of why they, they rebelled against him in the first place, because they didn't want to be subject to his lordship. I would suggest to you that doctrinally and intellectually, demons probably know more about God and know it better than we do. They have never argued about Calvinism. They have never debated end times theology. Demons don't get all tied up in knots over infant versus believer's baptism because they know the truth. They know who God is. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's a new one, and you're kind of, uh, maybe I'll follow him on that, but i got to think about it a little bit. But that's, I think, what, what James is saying in verse 19 when he says, in verse 19, you believe that God is one. You are a monotheist. <laughs> you do well. Guess what? So do the demons. In fact, demons are Trinitarians. They know there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know that God is sovereign. They've seen it in action. They witnessed the cross. They know there's an empty tomb. He says, in other words, as, as author David Roper puts it, there are no heretics among them. <laughs> and the reason James mentions it is because in verse 18, he raises the objection of those who say faith and works can be separated. That, that among the people of God, there are some who are just more wired to the faith and the knowledge and the theology side of things. And then there are others in the, the, among the people of God who are just more wired for the serving and the going and, and, and the emotional side of things. We've got the thinkers and we've got the doers. We've got the theologians and we've got the, you know, the hand-waving, praising singers. And we've got the faith people and we've got the works people. The New American Standard, which is what I typically preach from, actually renders verse 18 very poorly in leading up to this. If you've got some other translation that reads better, I think the ESV is as good as any. This is what is happening in verse 18. Probably the, the clearest way to look at it is James says, now listen, somebody's going to say, in, in response to all this faith and works business, hey James, you've got faith and I have works, close quote. You've got your faith and I've got my works, or vice versa. And James' response at the end of that close quote, which is in most of your Bibles, it's just not here in mine, is this, all right, show me your faith without the works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. What does faith without works look like? How do I know it's real? Where's the proof? And, and the reason James says that is you show me your faith without the works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works, is the problem with that. Again, here's what we were talking about in verse 19. Listen, you believe God's one. You, you know your stuff, and you do well. So do the demons. And they shudder. Now that, that's the interesting part of this verse to me. Because what that means is that demons who already know the truth, that their knowledge of God, the truth of God, it elicits a visceral emotional response within them. They are not neutral to it. They shudder. It's a, it's a fear-based word. The analogy, it's not what the word means, but the idea is when they think about and recognize who God is, the hair on the back of their neck stands on end. It elicits an emotional, internal response. In other words, here's where I'm going with this. Demons, they possess the dual realities of knowledge plus emotion. They know their stuff, 
and it makes them feel funny on the inside. But are demons saved? Of course not. Why? Because they haven't done the most important thing, surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They know it all. They feel it. But they're not saved. Which brings us to what I mean, and I think part of what James is trying to warn us about here, about the peril of knowledge plus emotion. Now listen, I understand. I, I affirm Christianity is not an emotionless faith, okay? It's a good Sunday at church if you get to both laugh and cry in the span of 90 minutes. That's a good day. Our, fo- our faith should stir our emotions. I was thinking about that this week and how uh, some of you know that a group of us men, elders and pastors and deacons, we used to go to the pastor's conference at, at Moody Bible Institute every year. That conference has ended, so we don't go anymore. But every year, 8, 10, 12 of us would go. And without fail, multiple times in the week, we'd come to the end of some great hymn of the faith, or we'd be singing this great set of worship songs. And, and all of a sudden, you'd kind of, we're all, all of us there, the dozen of us in the balcony, where we always we had our spot marked out, no one else was allowed to sit there. We claimed it. And, and you'd look around at the other guys, and there's a whole lot of this going on at the end of the song. And I'm like, you know, there didn't, a dust storm didn't just blow through here. <laughs> These guys who are so serious in church, man, they are weeping. And And me along with them. Our faith is not an emotionless faith. But here's the thing. If your Christianity is rooted in an emotional experience. I believe I'm a Christian because there was that one time I got got, this feeling, this sensation. Or or if, if your faith in Christ, your Christianity has to be sustained by regular emotional fixes i got to come back to church and get my fix so I can make it through another week. In other words, you've got all the facts and all the feels, right? You've got those two things in your life. Here's what James is saying, but it never translates into your daily life. Just like the problem of knowledge without compassion, you've got knowledge and you've got an overabundance of compassion, but it doesn't show up in your daily life. Well, let me repeat James's question. Again, don't take it up with me. Take it up with him. When he says, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In other words, in other words, there's a pretty good chance that you still need to do what the people in the first group need to do, what demons cannot do, will not do, and that's surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To let the sorrow, the emotion, lead you to what? To repentance. That's the key. That's the key. So there's a problem of knowledge without compassion. There's the peril of knowledge plus emotion. And then finally, in the last six verses of the passage, James begins to talk to us about what I call the proof of genuine salvation. The proof. How do I know I'm truly saved? And to illustrate his point, what James does in the final six verses is he selects two Old Testament characters who, based on externals, they could not be more radically different from one another. He starts with Abraham, right? He starts with Abraham, the wealthy, respected, obedient, long-time man of faith, right? Followed God, wasn't perfect, but, but followed him by faith. And then he follows that up with Rahab, And that should ring a bell. We talked about Rahab not many weeks ago. You've got red ropes of hope hanging in your window because we looked at the story of Rahab. So this should be fresh for most of us. 
But, but how much more different could Rahab be than, than Abraham? He, as I said, he's the wealthy, respected, obedient Hebrew man called the friend of God. Rahab is the notorious, sinful, Gentile woman who belonged to the people who were the enemies of God. Couldn't pick two more radically different people. But according to James, this is so cool, they have one vital thing in common. First of all, in verse 22, regarding Abraham, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith, his faith, was perfected. And then you go to verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now again, what does it sound like James is preaching here? Sounds like he's preaching works-based salvation. What, What got Abraham and Rahab into the kingdom was they did some stuff and were justified for it. But that is not, everybody say that's not. That is not what what James is doing. Because while that is one thing, what I just showed you, Rahab and and Abraham have in common, what the other vital thing that, that, that Abraham and Rahab have in common is the Bible makes it very clear that before the two instances mentioned here, Abraham sacrificing or nearly sacrificing Isaac on an altar, Rahab protecting aligning against her own people and protecting the Hebrew spies. It was prior to that in both of their lives that there was a decision of personal faith in the Lord. See, the story of of Abraham and Isaac, that's that's in Genesis 22, up on the mountainside where God stops him and gives the the substitute. Well, Well, seven chapters and multiple decades before that in Genesis 15, it says that on that day, in response to the voice of the Lord that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he'd been saved a long time. And yet it says that, that what he did with Isaac on the mountainside justified him, that work. Rahab, the, the span is shorter, but it's the same thing. She protects the spies, she, she, she gets them safely out of Jericho. But if you go back to, to Joshua 2.11, it says the reason she did that, these are her words. She said, because I know that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on all the earth. I am doing what I'm doing. I am working because I believe. Because I'm saved. And so what James means when he says they were both justified by works is simply this. The deeds they did sprang from genuine faith. And and the way he's using justified is he's saying the works that they did validated authenticated, visibly demonstrated on the outside what had changed on the inside. They were justified in that sense in the eyes of men, authenticating, illustrating what was already true in the sight of God. Faith. Legitimate, saving faith. And the reason we should care about that is because according to verse 24, same goes for you and for me. When he says, you see, that a man, a woman, a young person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Listen, I feel very confident in saying that everybody, one of us here today and everyone watching at home could could easily and, and safely put ourselves somewhere on the spectrum between Rahab the prostitute and Abraham the patriarch, all right? I think the bookends are pretty solid there. You fit somewhere in between there in terms of your life and 
and, and, and the way you live and the things, the right and the wrong things that you have, have done. But like Rahab and Abraham, in order to truly be on that spectrum, to truly be among the people of God, the family of God, assured of eternal life, we've got to understand and respond to two things. This is what it all boils down to. We are saved by faith alone. Grace alone. Jesus Christ alone. You must repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ. And then secondly, saving faith is faith that works. Saving faith is faith that works. That works for the glory of God. More and more as time goes by. That, James says, is genuine proof of salvation. Has my life changed? Am I changing? Am I growing? Am I moving toward maturity in Christ? Where that leads us as we move to a close this morning is simply this. Whatever you have grasped, whatever you have not understood, whatever has has gotten your attention, whatever kind of slid right on by, there's really one fundamental question James wants you to ask yourself and he wants me to ask myself. Here it is. What does my life say about my faith? What does the life I'm living say about my faith? Are you certain you've genuinely trusted Jesus Christ? I don't, I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer? I'm not asking, did you raise your hand and walk an aisle? I'm not asking, was there a quiver in your liver and it made you feel so good? I'm not saying, I'm not asking, can you recite some spiritual principles, some spiritual laws? I'm asking what the Bible asks. Have you confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Because the Bible says whoever does that is in fact saved. If you have not done that, today is the day to settle it. As I prayed earlier, today is the day of salvation. This is the day God has given us. And if we're reminded of anything in this season we're in, it's that life is fragile and precious. And what is true today may be turned entirely upside down tomorrow. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Don't let, if, if, if the answer is you search your heart is no, don't let the shame of going, but I've been coming here for years and, and, and everybody thinks I am. Don't let that be the thing that keeps you from trusting Christ. And, and on the other hand, if you have done that, if you do know Jesus and you love him, are you growing in evident Christ-likeness? Step by step, bit by bit, choice by choice. Understanding it's not about perfection. It is about transparency, honesty, repentance, confession, trust. Are you growing? Because the big idea of today's message is this. It is that authentic Christian faith produces actively Christian lives. I don't mean busy Christian lives. I mean lives that are actively Christian, Christ-like in what we say and what we do. Because genuine faith is faith that works. And I mean that in every sense of the word. Let's bow our heads together. Just in a moment, we're going to close with a song of worship. 
important, rich song of worship about Christ, our cornerstone. But we need to take this minute or two to ask ourselves the question, what does my life really say about my faith? If you have not trusted Jesus Christ, please respond to his offer today. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a relationship with you. I believe that you died in my place and rose from the dead. And I gladly receive the gift of salvation today. If you do that, I want you to tell somebody about it. Let them share in the joy with you. Let them pray over you. Let them begin to show you and introduce you to others who can help you begin this this unusual, amazing, oftentimes very strange adventure of following Christ. For those of us who do know Jesus, and and maybe we're just we're, we're moving along, slow but sure. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep asking great things of God. Keep expecting great things from God. And for those of us who are somewhere in the middle, kind of lost our way, kind of let that that flame begin to fade, you can ask him right now, Lord, Lord, fan it back into a fire. Let a passion for you grow in my life. That it might, it can't help but spill over in the person that I am. Father, I thank you this morning that you are capable. You are sufficient for all these things. You are mighty to save. You're gracious to forgive. You are strong and compassionate to help us when we are broken and weak. And you can conform us to the image of Christ. You promise to finish what you start in us. Father, some of us just need to get started today. And others of us need to keep walking. Father, thank you that you, through your word, speak to our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can change us from the inside out. Father, I pray as always that the things of truth that have been proclaimed here this morning would be sealed in and and taken to heart and moved to our hands and and our feet, our mouths. Father, whatever else was said that isn't necessary, just let it be forgotten that we leave looking to and walking in step with Jesus alone. In his name we pray. Amen.